my name is Nat Vitiatanaset. And my name is Michael Waits. Welcome to Asian Fintech Podcast, a podcast that makes fintech inclusive, accessible, and understandable for everyone. Our guest today is Kailin Sung, the co-founder and chief investment officer of Funnel. In her role as CIO, she leads the group's corporate development division and is responsible for the development of the group's new business units, both organically and inorganically. Under her wing, Funnel has secured over 500 million of funding for private companies and PEE and VC funds from over 14,000 investors. Kylin is also a director of HG Exchange, a private security exchange supporting the issuance and trading of private company shares. And she's also currently served as a vice president of the Singapore Fintech Association. Hi, Kylin. How are you? Good. Quite excited to be on here today. <laughs> it's great to have you. There's that amazing voice again. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is the first time like I ever got compliments from my voice. It's my pleasure. <laughs> well, so excited to have you. I think Southeast Asia financial landscape is quite heating up these days with SPAC coming up and a lot of unicorn companies that we know are going with their IPO. So a lot of companies are coming close to their exit. So that's why I think it's a great pleasure to have you today with us. So before we get started and talk about Funnel, just want the listeners to hear a little bit more about you. So can you tell us more about what made you decide to start Funnel and why you chose this career path as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I used to work in investment banking prior to starting Funnel. So I met my co-founder in a work setting. Actually, he just sit diagonally across me when we were both working in JP Morgan. And that's how the idea started, essentially. So while I was working in the corporate finance team, my co-founder, Kelvin, was actually working in the equity capital markets team. And I think for five, six years, we were really good friendship. And in 2015, 16, that was the time when we do see a change in the regulatory line, landscape. And it started to spur us thinking about, you know, what if technology has come in to change the way that investment banking has been done prior to this, right? So essentially, when we were both working and we just realized that actually a lot of the clientele of, you know, the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman, they're all large market cap companies and they are very big. And last thing, okay, so what happened to the backbone of the economy, right? SMEs are always known to be the backbone of the economy. And why do they not have access to financial intermediary the same ways as such large companies have access to, right? And that's when we start drilling down, you know, what happened. So we look at all the transaction work on from start to end. It's all human, right? So, so for instance, me, I used to work till like 3, 4, 5 a.m., right? Servicing these large companies. And from let's just take an example, right? If one transaction requires 100, it's usually more, but if it's just, for example, 100 man hours multiplied by the salary cost of all the bankers that's worked on this transaction before. And you'll realize that they'll come down to a cost structure that's very hard to overcome for them to service SMEs. It's because like due to the how it's done, just pure label, pure manpower, it's very, very hard to actually change the cost structures to reduce the cost structure. And therefore, with such a high cost structure, they can only get back the revenue for to service such cost structure by only working on large transactions, right? So that was the first observation we had. Second was during 2015, that's when Jobs Act in the US started coming into play and a lot of Southeast Asia countries started actually changing their regulations such that you could raise funds through an online platform. 
And this second observation allows us to think, okay, if we use technology to change the way we've done things, create excess and liquidity for both companies and investors. And that's when, you know, something, maybe something that can come out of this that revolutionizes the whole private capital markets, right? That's how essentially Funder was started. We deliberated for a while and then left banking together and started Funder together. Was there some kind of fear in you and your co-founder about leaving what were pretty stable jobs in the capital markets and probably relatively well-paying. I mean, I know what it feels like because I always say it took me 20 years to leave. It took you a lot shorter amount of time, but it's scary a little bit to jump off that train because once you get off, it's hard to get back on. What, what was that feeling like when the two of you left? Yeah. So now that I think that maybe we're a bit naive. <laughs> <laughs> you think? No, I can explain a little bit of a backstory, right? Please. So both me and Cal's family are actually entrepreneurs. So that kind of like mitigate a little bit of how we see risk because the profile that we, you know, how we see our parents work through like, you know, looking at entrepreneur from nothing to something, right? right so right. the thought process is our baseline is, oh, we can just go back to nothing. And nothing can stop us because we just have like, you know, at most move back to our parents. There's still like a roof over our head. You know, we can go back to banking. So like, I think in Singapore, I feel like the opportunity cost, while people think it's very high, it's actually not as high as what people think. And that's how like, when I'm 28, I decided, oh, you know, I have enough experience and then left, right? But on hindsight, I was like, oh, okay, 28, maybe a bit young. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's just like, if I didn't do it then, I might not have done it ever, right? So I don't regret it. It's just that while thinking back, right, at such young age compared to, you know, other founders I've met, I have a lot of mentors in the fintech, women mentors as well. And I do see the value at they provide the depth of thinking. And I guess I just have like, courage <laughs> then and perseverance and that kind of make up some parts that are lacking right then yeah hmm. and I think for founders in general they typically have this what do you call it excessive belief and conviction in what they're building right what was that inspiration or conviction that you had for you to start funnel in the first place what made you believe in the vision so much that you were willing to take that risk yeah. So a lot of people don't know about our our mission since in 2015 till now has never changed, right? Because we always believe in our mission a lot. And what changed is actually the how, not the what, right? We have never doubted our mission. And this coupled by a few facts in 15 and 16, I also have friends who actually started their company facing the same challenge. And second, we do see competitors coming into the space and we feel like we could do better. <laughs> And that's kind of like just that time at that place, right? And a little bit of luck has it that, you know, just lead us to this stage where we believe that this is something that we really want to work on. And true enough, fast forward five years later and looking at our mission to today, what we do is we want to actually ensure efficient capital allocation within the private capital markets and therefore generate employment and build nations. And this sentence have not changed in any of our days. actually sent to even interviewers, right? You know, we have, uh, when people interview and we recruit because we really want people who believe in our mission. And since then, you know, while we, at the start, we were always focusing on efficiency, effectiveness, basically access as well. The last two to three years, we also have been focusing on liquidity. 
that's how you know some of the uh, new products that have rolled out at Funnel come about. Again, back to the mission, but different ways to solve the challenge that's faced within the private capital market. And I think it's also quite lucky in the sense that the macro landscape also promote this whole focus in private capital markets, right? Because we see the ecosystem in Southeast Asia maturing. And second, you know, the likes of Gojek, Grab, and people do see that a lot of companies remain private, right? Because, and it's a trend that's actually in quite a lot of the Southeast Asia, especially in Singapore, where companies go delisting and a lot of the tech companies choose not to go public until they're large enough and so on and so forth. So, so in, in that crossroad, in terms of macro trends, we're also pretty lucky as well. Can I just jump in here for a second? You mentioned the Jobs Act, right, which was obviously very important in relation to crowdfunding and allowing smaller investors. It fits into your whole mantra, which is you want to help smaller businesses get funded, but you also want to help smaller investors be involved in that funding and participate in the upside. The one thing you didn't mention was Sarbanes-Oxley, right? And the reason that a lot of companies, at least in my mind, don't want to go public until they're much bigger is because... Sarbanes-Oxley created a whole host of sort of regulatory and cost provisions that just made it much more egregious to be a public company. Was that something you also considered? At that point, not really, because if you look at the regulatory landscape in Southeast Asia, it's also quite different. Yep. Yeah. And while the U.S. maybe towards more disclosure-based, the governments here in Southeast Asia are quite... Basically, they do try to play the part of shaping the regulations such that they take care of investors as well. Fair enough. <laughs> and that's a slight difference in, in regulatory perspective, right? But what we see here in Southeast Asia is that while there is that part, but we do engage regulators quite actively to help also shape. So there's upside and downsides to it. While they do see that they want to help to actually shape the industry and they play a more active role because before any company started, let's say in Malaysia, right? They actually roll out the regulations first. And then invite while the consultation staff were done in quite a fast manner and they were just like actively trying to shape the industry such that, you know, they want to help it grow. Where compared to like, you know, I guess in the US, it's like, okay, people just rush and then we'll look at regulations, set up regulations so that we can monitor them better. And this is like a little bit of a different perception. Even in MAS, I would say that they do take a very active role to engage fintech, right? To yeah. see how, where to get regulations, etc. The direct access is a bit different, but the upside is that players like us could, I suppose, try and engage regulators to shape the, how the regulation is done. Downside is that once they have a certain agenda, I, I suppose it's a little bit hard to change the way how they frame the regulations. And the good thing is that I think we do have license in both Singapore and Malaysia. And in Malaysia, I'm really thankful, right? Because the way they shape it, they really allow like the industry to flourish while the industry in general are still growing, still not like as big as the public markets in terms of financial interior working in this sector. But they do actually listen to us quite actively. Before we get into the weeds here, maybe we can take a step back and talk a little bit about what Funnel is in a nutshell, perhaps in the context of founders and and early employees, right, who hold shares in the company. What should they know about Funnel? 
Okay, so Fana is a Southeast Asia's largest private investment platform. So we leverage on technology and data and offer unlisted private equity type opportunities to accredited and institutional investors. And our mission is to build the next generation capital market infrastructure to solve two main issues, to increase access and liquidity for entrepreneurs and investors. I think just a few stats since we have founded, we actually have connected more than 15K investors, evaluated over 4K investment opportunities and facilitated over 540 mil in direct and secondary transactions, right? And this includes funds as well, primary issuance, secondary trading and primary issuance of uh, basically for funds who are doing primary raising. And I did some stalking on your website a little bit. There were <laughs> all sorts of deals from early stage companies all the way through to pre-IPO or even SpaceX, which is not in Southeast Asia, but that was quite amazing to see notable deals on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's always our mission, right? To make sure that investors have access and companies have access to investors as well, right? And our target audience can be quite wide ranging. We do actually also, like Net, what Net mentioned, we do help employees liquidate their shares and, and that's another part of our mission. And the lowest transaction we have done was like maybe 15K US and we still do it, right? May not be like profit making for such a small transaction for secondaries given how grey, I would say grey or I guess the process differs from companies to companies with regards to ESOS. Yeah. yeah. And you talked about the cost structure back in the days when you were at um, an investment banking firm that the cost structure wasn't supportive for small companies to raise funds, right? How does technology play a role in reducing that cost to make funnel possible to do deals such as, you know, the minimum of 15K? Yeah. So the technology comes from, so the whole funnel, you know, that's how it came out. <laughs> the whole funnel. At every stage, you know, we leverage on data intelligence in different ways. So at the start, we realized that while there are a lot of companies and the investors also have different preference, etc. And we realized that, you know, one year may have thousand plus. I mean, now we have screened more than to 5,000 type opportunities through the platform. And how do we screen so much deals with so few people, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, when we first started, there were only like three people, you know, working You're like venture capital fund on steroids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort, right? know, yeah. So how do you do that, right? So that's at that first stage, right, of screening. That's how some of the technologies leverage on. We collect more than about 100 data points for each companies and map it to our investor space preference as well as the second cut. And with that screening tool that we have, we actually uh, screen about, so from like, let's say four or 5,000, only about 10% went to like, further due diligence. That's when we do a little bit of work because we are licensed in the country that we operate in. There's some level of due diligence that we have to undertake. And that technology, to be honest, if you asked me five years ago, oh, would you have data scientists on our team to help you build such stuff? I would say I, I wouldn't know, right? I don't even know. <laughs> what is ML model, you know, NLP. Did I need one? <laughs> yeah, you know, because that's when I say that what a mission is important, right? Because of how you'll never know until yeah. you start executing. And that's why some of this stuff was like, oh, you know, I'm learning as I come to talk to my data head and they're like, oh, all these different models stuff coming out. So, oh, interesting. And then all these are rolled out to execute. And the middle part where we do due diligence, uh, there's less of a technology involvement right now, just cause the needs of each company, et cetera. We haven't found a good way to make it 
better, more efficient. But we do leverage on simple stuff because like for us, we need to ensure that certain like KYC, et cetera, is done. So those can be automated quite quickly. But I would say deep tech stuff, I would say the middle part is not as much. And then for the distribution side, that's when the technology and data comes in again because we have about 15K, right, of investors and we don't blast all our deals to all 15K. I think my unsubscription rate will be like number one at the top, right? So we make sure that we bring relevant deals or deals to the right investors at the right time, right? And that was how we first started the first two years. And then on the liquidity part, that's another set of technology that we leverage on with the establishment of HG Exchange. Because again, back to us, when we are trying to solve liquidity, we don't think, okay, how much money we make out of it. Obviously, I shouldn't be saying that. My investor will be scolding me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But my point is that when we're looking at solving, let's say, liquidity, the first thought I have was that, okay, so what's the main issue with solving liquidity? It's actually market participants. How do you get, because it's not as liquid as public markets, right? So how do you get as many participants to come in to create some sort of liquidity for investors who want to cash out or investors who want to get in, right? And the only way around it where we brainstormed for quite a while, we spoke to, we spoke to a lot of people who have big exchanges, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, we landed on our current business model for HGX, right? Which is actually a member-driven exchange. Because instead of acquiring investors one by one, we actually acquire investors via other licensed firms, brokerages, such that when we onboard one firm, we get access to 1 million accounts. Right. Yeah, that's how we feel that that was supercharged liquidity because of the market participants. And with a larger market participant, the technology leverage on is also a little bit different, right? Because what happened is that for settlement process, etc., the secondary transaction, I will, for me, I, I divide the two, right? Digital capital markets product and non-digital capital market products. Right now, it's a split of both, but over time, we do see all the unlisted capital market products will move to digital. And what digital means is that actually we digitize all the shares or, you know, collective investment scheme or the LP stakes, custodize it and issue a smart contract to represent the underlying interests or security. And that's the only way to make the whole process more transparent and more synchronized because in our experience, company A process for buy and sell is very different for company B and company C because each company have their differences in transfer limitation, whether they have rofer rights or first refuser. Yep. And it gets more and more... Different common. investor rights that relate to the shares. Yeah. Right? So the only, only way to use technology is to actually hold in custody and then issue digital tokens or smart contracts to represent underlying. So then the buy and sell, when you create liquidity, the overhang over transaction timing, etc. can be removed. And that's how we see the exchange piece via HGX. And the technology there is really focusing on that piece, right? bring products on, digitize it, and then do buy and trading completion within as short timing as possible. So do you take, for these smart contracts, do you take these um, right of first refusal rights and whatever's sort of written into their shareholder agreements for every individual company and put them into an Ethereum smart contract for every company? So you've got a tech team that actually does that writing for you. And then when the transaction occurs, it occurs using that smart contract. And is it the case as well? Sorry, a lot of questions, but is it the case as well that these are, it's like a, like an exchange is a blind transaction. I never know who's on the other side of my trade. Is that the case as well for these secondary transactions? 
Yeah. So what happened when we cast the dice, right? And then we are selling tokens, right? Yeah. The cap table name is still ABC custodian, right? So you don't change the underlying. So you, you, right. you skip the whole process, right? You only have to do the whole process once. Basically, when you first move into digitizing, what happened was we have to go through the, all the proper process. If that's Rofer, we go through Rofer. And then we have to make sure that we have legal rights over all the shares, Custodize them. And then when the digital tokens are issued, then you can trade them freely as with any exchanges, right? Over right. Uh, in the world. Yeah. So, meaning that buyers that buy into those tokens don't need to be screened because you are essentially the shareholder and not them. It's like in any private banking, right? Or nominee structure, when it hits a FI, they don't need to do diligence further because the FI would have done everything they've done in terms of KYC, UBO checks, etc. And they, the custodian is the rightful owner based on the cap table, right? And then there's a back-to-back to whoever owns the shares after. Right. So you use this analogy where it's similar to how mutual funds would hold shares and then they would issue these small unit of investment for retail consumers. But then on the cap table, it's a mutual fund's name, not the retail consumer who is holding the shares. It's a yeah. sort of similar analogy. Yeah, I, I would say that it's more similar or even for listed company, you do see like when maybe DBS, private bank, you know, hold shares and then they sell on behalf of the clients, right? So you only hit to the FI and then you don't go further, right? So in the announcement, you don't see who actually <laughs> sold the shares even for a listed market type of changes in let's say major shareholder changes and so on and so forth. Was the tokenization always part of your business model or was that a change that took place as you decided to figure out what the right way to execute this was? Yeah. Again, when I was starting the company five years ago, I've never thought that we'll use tokens, right? And it also happened because that the way to solve, I feel that liquidity is a bit different than yep. trying to solve excess efficiency, et cetera. Absolutely. To solve secondaries. And then we ourselves actually trans- transacted secondaries first in a non-digital way to see what's the challenge, right? And yep. then look into it to see how do you make the whole process smoother, right? Before we roll it out to like a million people. Because in HJX right now, we have three members, Funnel as a dealer broker, Prime Partners, as well as Philip Securities. Right? And Philip Securities itself has really a million accounts. And how do we make it scalable in that way, right? The only way to make it scalable is that the whole end-to-end process is digitized. And that's how, you know, the blockchain came in and then Silica was brought in as well. And then well, obviously before that was like, oh, public blockchain, private blockchain, all this were done together in terms of analysis. And then we went with Silica via public blockchain perspective and built this whole thing. So just to recap, you essentially came from the world of manual work of doing the transaction and fundraising at the investment bank. And then you transition into funnel, let's say the generation one of funnel, which is using technology to screen deals and then customizing the deal recommendation to the investors so that no matter where the deals are originated, they can find investor wherever the investors are around the world. Then you're moving to the second generation of funnel, which is tokenizing these shares onto the blockchain. So the trading can be easier and done through the smart contracts without having to manually check all the investors, right? And the transfer of shares, right? How do, how do you see this progress going forward over the next few years? And what's the status of XGX today? 
mm. in terms of commercialization and actual adoption? Yeah, so far the conversation when we first started on primary issuance and then moving on to secondaries because we believe that secondary you need certain level of market awareness before we embark onto it. And our dream, again back to our mission, right? While we have bring some access to accredited investors, our dream is really to actually bring it down to the retail investors at a certain point. And to do that, the level of awareness, uh, the type of product that we're looking at uh, have to make sense for retail investors, right? Because when I was looking all around the world on platforms that do basically equity type crowdfunding for retail, at a certain point in time, when we look at them and we realize that while it's okay, you know, the, the transaction flows has increased, but we do, we do feel that there's just a small part missing and we are trying to change it using a different type of product. And I can't disclose it now, but I'm hoping that we can share more in the future <laughs> when we actually bring it down to retail, right? Because I think the main issue with retail is that while a lot of them, you can tell them, okay, you know, it's a long patient capital. Most VC funds fund life is 10 plus two. Right. Right. Sometimes eight plus two, but usually 10 plus. But the earlier you go, it's like longer, right? And a lot of retail investors doesn't realize that, oh, it's, it's a patient capital. While they're interested, you know, they want to invest in space, X, et cetera. But the type of liquidity can be bringed out two ways, right? Through a secondary market like history exchange or a different type of funding structure, a different type of financial structure. And that's something that we are working on to ensure that, you know, once we launch into retail, it's a sustainable business model for both sides, right? For issuers as well as for the investors, retail investors who comes in. And also we realized that while we cater to a lot of... So right now, a lot of people who came to us are still majority uh, non-brick and mortar, so like more tech-enabled venture-backed companies. We do have actually more brick and mortar type companies that come to us as well and we have successfully helped them. But I would think that going forward, this part of the economy is something that we want to look into a little bit more while the venture-backed type companies has big numbers, right? In terms of percentage of the entire economy, there's still the rest of the world that we really like to service and help. All this probably will come nicely, hopefully in the next one to two years when we innovate around this such that we can bring a type of funding structure accessible to retail as well as different type of issuers and have that product market fit from that perspective. And then we'll be ready to roll that out as well. Are you suggesting that there's a market for, because there's a generational transfer going on right now for SME businesses and SME businesses, whether it's in Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and some of those businesses need to be recapitalized and refunded. Is there a way that these SMEs can then take advantage of the tokenization functionality that you've built to be able to raise money, retool those businesses. It's like a private equity funding, right? In the sense that those PE businesses can now get funded in a way that they couldn't get funded before, right? Because traditionally PE was a very local business, right? I'm in Jakarta. I look at the businesses around Jakarta. I can fund them because I can understand them. I can meet the founders or I can meet the next generation or the third generation people that are in the business. But a business like Funnel now says, that's great. But now you can have access to retail investors and PE investors, not just regionally, but globally through this tokenization. Is that something that you're, is that what you're suggesting now? I think tokenizing is probably innovation on the technology front. So basically, if it's the equity, the tokenization, just digitize the contract 
SPA into a token, right? And what we are seeing is we are looking around to whether innovating around the type of structure, whether we can find something that's in between equity and debt such that, you know, it will bring a win-win situation. Because I feel like for equity, it's very long gestation, but that isn't really soft the issue because I think there are fixed return for everybody. It's a race. So to find out, while we have some debt funds or or debt deals on our platform, but ultimately what we feel is that it's a race to the lowest cost of capital. Because once you have the risk rated, once you have done all your credit scoring, there are innovation around type of credit scoring. So for us, after you establish that, right, and then when you look at a lot of P2P platform, we started off with retail investors, but over time, you'll see that a lot of the transactions are done by institutional. Because once the market is developed, you're raised to the lowest cost of capital, right? And then the lowest cost is actually institution, right? And ultimately for SMEs, while that's a help, right, it's something that we think that it's not something that we are maybe good at or want to focus on. And if let's say we are trying to do something that's more retail, it will be something that maybe your customer can invest in or whatnot, and that it cannot be replaced by a bank, right? If the bank has that credit risk and comes in to do this, does it mean that do you, as a form of funding, is there any other benefits to you as a business owner other than capital, right? Right. And that's how we are re-looking at this. Uh, we're still developing it. So while it's, I think it's, it's quite interesting for me to hear from your view as well, Michael, and that will actually help us develop the how other people think, think about this retail segment a bit more. But I do feel like the retail segment is something that would really come back to how we believe in our mission in terms of helping businesses. And that will solve a very big puzzle also of our mission. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, if you don't mind me saying this, one of the things you mentioned really early on in this conversation was that the big investment banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and stuff like that really have defaulted to doing just the biggest deals because of the way that the fee structure has collapsed. The only way they can make money and fund their own operations and still be profitable is by doing multi-billion dollar deals. And I've had these conversations with people at Goldman, even in the last few years, and they're like, yeah, that's a great deal. But if it's not above a billion dollars, we simply can't do it. We're interested in it, but we can't do it. But what it sounds like you're doing is democratizing capital on both sides of the equation, allowing smaller companies to not just raise money, but get liquidity, and also allowing smaller investors to participate in those deals in a way that they might not have been able to do before. Is that, is that fair? Yes, I think that's a very accurate picture of how we started and what problems we're actually trying to solve in today's world. Got it. And to step back a bit on the secondary shares, right? You said that liquidity is a problem before. I understand that today, if you're a founder or an employee at all these tech companies and you get the shares, it's still pretty hard for these guys to sell their shares, right? But what has been the development of the secondary market so far? And what, what's the state of the market today? Is it still hard as before? Or how has it been developed over the past recent years? Yeah. So I think with uh, same as listed company, right? For a secondary market, there are uh, probably times where there are a lot more, I guess, transaction, pricing difference, etc. More BNS, and us. And there are times where less. I think it's interesting to share through our platform this year compared to last year, this year to date compared to last year, we actually see 10 times more indicative BNS <laughs> <laughs> compared to the whole of last year, right? Yikes. So, 
I think that it's also a function of the market, right? Because we do see a lot of private market having some sort of activity in terms of private companies going listing, mergers, etc. And that spur a lot of activities. Because people do see sometimes jump in share price, they want to take advantage of it, or people are speculating like when they eventually get listed, what's the price, and then work backwards. This is you know what I'm going to buy the shares at, <laughs> and and that's quite interesting for me as well. Like this year, I think uh, one of the big thing this year was like all the spec stuff, right? And then that also have caused some sort of like after effect in the secondary market in terms of what we see because they do expect a lot of specs coming in to buy and sell and then the activity spike up as well, right? So that's quite interesting for me as well to see how the private market move respect to what's happening in the public markets as well. Yeah. I will say this. I wish that a company like Funnel has been, had been around in 2014 or anytime even in, before you found it. And I'll say this. I had plenty of experiences of buying shares in startup companies and then trying to sell them even with my friends and just the difficulty of just making a share transfer from me to a friend of mine was so difficult i cannot explain to you and i was meant to do all the documentation myself and the money transfers and it was really really hard and it would have been awesome back then if i could have just like sold a token <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have caused way few arguments between me and some very close friends where it literally got to the point where I said, look, just trust me, I'll give you whatever the return is from today on. Not good enough. Right. And it shouldn't be good enough, but it's a real problem that you're solving at the really low level of the transfer of share rights to somebody. And like you said, because every startup has different rights associated with it. Now I have to go through and explain what are the shareholder rights I have to share the shareholder documents. I cannot tell you how difficult this was back then. And those are typically more than 20 pages. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And, and most people don't understand them, right? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was saying that even for now, for some that has really, really strict transfer restrictions, right? right? We can't customize it, right? The other way to structure is, is like what you mentioned, actually. <laughs> a derivative contract, right? Like a forward contract. Yeah. And there are companies who have done that, though it's not investor-friendly, right? Because you're taking a credit risk on the individual. Correct. Yeah. Well, there are ways to structure around it. And it's still happening now because like, you know, even for, for private markets, right? The way they see the host, there are just so many different ways that each company manage their cap table. And some really strict ones will still have the same issue. It's something that we're trying to overcome. And we do encourage that, say, I mean, this may be where one way to see, like you mentioned, right? What Nat mentioned is like, maybe it's hard. What happened is that maybe like, you know, with a lot of employees could gang up together and, and come to us. And then, you know, that's a way, I suppose when, when a lot of employees come together, right? There are probably ways to help convince the board or the founders to think it differently because the perception on liquidity is, is quite a diverse one. Absolutely. Yeah. Similar to SpaceX, I think when they usually have this window where they allow the employees to sell their shares because the company is still private, right? So they, the, the employees can't get liquidity and then they have this window where employees can sell their shares from time to time. So I think it helps these employees who might need liquidity to get funding to do whatever they want to do as well, right? So it's good for both the company and also for the employees. But I'm quite curious. So how do you price these secondary shares? Just, you know, if I, if I were to join a startup tomorrow and I get shares and then 
a week later, I want to quit and I want to sell my shares. How do I price them? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would... Don't, don't quit so soon. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's easy to price, right? Because as with company, uh, access to information... It's always a tough one. But ultimately, as I say, there are spectrum, right? There's the more liquid private stocks and then there were the less liquid one. And how we usually triangulate the pricing would be last round price, market price, and next round price. And that's how we triangulate it. And I guess people will start asking, oh, how do you get market pricing? It depends on some of the stock. If you go through us on our platform, you can see some of this historical pricing or current B&R spread as well to see whether, you know, to see how is it. So in my experience, if the B and R spread is too wide or fluctuates too much, usually right. it's, it's, you know, the trading will be, as in the completed stocks for those wide spreads will be quite, the chance of that completing is really low. <laughs> and when the price stabilizes, right, and that's when transaction can take place more smoothly, just cause, you know, people, I feel like sometimes people are fishing as well. Oh, 10 times increase and then they were just like, <laughs> try their luck. I do think that the bigger ones at, at times where the prices are more or less stable, the flows are actually higher. That's my experience. And second is, I think in the market of private transaction, if I divide into two parts, right? So one part will be the very liquid ones, unicorn, decacorn status. And then the ones that's not unicorn, maybe series C, D part above. For this ones, because maybe some of the, like the three reference price, right? Last price, next round, market price. Maybe less information of, let's say, market price. Last round maybe, but there's no visibility on next round price. Usually this part, we do collaborate with founders themselves to get some information, some data, etc. to help actually create some sort of liquidity just because the clarity is not as high as let's say a decacon, right? Because eyes closed, they feel that the risk is already very low, most of them. And they'll be like, okay, it's just about pricing. And they just look at reference price and then they would trade on it. Right. Look in the listed markets, like you said, if you split it into two big categories, you know, very, very liquid companies like Toyota, Honda, HSBC, they trade millions and millions of shares and billions of dollars of securities every day. It's pretty easy to figure out where the price is. For more illiquid shares, price discovery ends up being really important. And like you said, there are ways to triangulate that price by looking at comps, so comparable companies where they've traded recently, looking at the overall market, there are indices in the listed markets, and we can create indices actually in the non-listed markets. And then if we look at how the index of companies has moved, and somebody should build these indices actually for for startup companies, as the index goes up and down, you can then take a look at the really illiquid stocks and see what their comps have done and what they should do just based on some of the other metrics and some of the other data points that you're choosing and come up with a fair price, at least a price you can argue about Mm. to do proper price discovery for those shares. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that we also provide is like research. Yeah. 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 Just like a regular investment bank. Yeah. Yeah. So the difference is that for a lot of this research is you probably need the company's help in some ways if they are vested also. So in the founders themselves must feel vested that, you know, their current employees 
or ex-employers require some liquidity. It's not right. for a selfish reason, right? It's just needs of <laughs> basic needs, right? Yeah. And how do we create that liquidity together with the founders, right? So we do work with them as well to ensure that the visibility is, is better. But I do see that going forward as transparency of data comes in, right? Just for example, in Singapore, financial data actually for all Singapore companies are actually available publicly via ACRA. So if they do their filing, you can look at their historical financials and so on and so forth, right? Yep. So while, while technology comes in and the information asymmetry is minimized, that's also when a lot of this can also happen faster. It sounds like such a fun job and such a fun business to do. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if you come out of the capital markets background, it's just you're always talking about it anyway. I remember when I sat on a trading desk, like it didn't matter if it was Tuesday at 9 or Sunday afternoon at 2, like you're just constantly talking about the market. So it sounds like a ton of fun to build. Yeah. yeah, but I think the difference here is that you get to look at the market and imagine how it would be in the future, right? And you have a chance sure. to reshape it, which is super cool. I think Michael and I shared an experience of being on the trading floor. And during that time, we just talked about the market every day, but it was just what's going on in the market rather yeah, than how exactly. we would how reshape it. Right, how to change it, which is so much more powerful. So I'm super excited about the conversation we are having today. Is there any challenges that you had or like tough moments that you experienced building this company throughout the past five years? Yeah, of course. I think if any founders <laughs> know, <laughs> I mean, it's either their luck is like one in like, I don't know, one billion. <laughs> for me, it's because I guess, uh, I, so Cal is four years older than me, right? So for me, I was like sub 30 then. And a lot of things I feel like being thrown in, maybe a little bit unprepared, but because of unpreparedness, you know, you are put in a position, right? To learn a lot more from the whole experience. And I, I do feel like that's, kind of scary and exciting at the same time. <laughs> so I think one of the things that happened when we first started, two things, right? So I guess when you're working in corporate finance team, you don't really have to, at that age, you don't have to do a lot of networking and stuff like that, right? While we are starting out, even do market research, speaking to other founders, going to events, it's kind of a small lip out, but that's something manageable. I mean, a lot of female groups I have for young entrepreneur, I'll say that, okay, just think about this, right? Like, what's the worst you can happen? People not talking to you, right? <laughs> like, that, that cannot be, like, the worst thing that happened, right? So, every time, you know, like, they have an issue or I have an issue then to speak out or whatnot, I just have to keep thinking about that. And then that will just help me overcome. That's, like, the mini stuff, right? The first, I think, big stuff is people management for me then. And I think... Two years in, sort of, then, you know, we do performance review all the time. And then when we decided to transition people out because of lack of performance and so on and so forth, I, I would think that that was my first thing that I didn't imagine that I would be doing, like, when I first started yeah, the it's company. Hard. It's hard. Firing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, small stuff like that. And then, like, you know, how do I come in? And the big stuff like this, right? And then sometimes I, I would, like, okay talk to people to share some experience. I learned a lot from other co-founders as well. And But the first time when I'm, I'm the one talking to the person <laughs> and doing it, I feel like, oh my God, am I like doing the right thing? Have I conveyed properly? Could I have done it better? And then actually after that, right, as after we went self-evaluate, I just... I just feel that most of the time when you deliberate a lot and we've decided to let people go because of 
lack of fit or lack of performance. And generally, at that point, you might feel really stressed that you have to do it. But generally, after that, you realize that it's actually better for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they can get on with their life as well and find something that might be a better fit, right? Yeah. So it's just like the time and the structure, the culture, just is not a good fit then, right? And not that it's easier now, but based on that, right, I, I do feel like for other founders and so on and so forth, that it's not something that you alone experience, like Michael experienced it, Nat experienced it, and like everybody experienced, right? And talk to more people, right, to do share some of this experience would be helpful in terms of getting out of like stuff that you think that, you know, is difficult. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that you also have a few mentors who are female in the fintech space who you keep regular contact with, right? So I think entrepreneurship is very lonely. So having mentors and co-founders who you can browse ideas with are definitely helpful. So let's switch gear a bit and talk about fun stuff. <laughs> what, <laughs> maybe what don't people know about you? Oh, what people don't know about me. I'm actually big on marine conservation stuff. So I do volunteer work once every three years to actually on research boats just to be out there and see how it can help. Not that I can help a lot because I have no like marine biologist background, but just being there, sometimes they just need people to clean the boat or like bring in the microphone where they record whales' voices and like just manual work, right? And I do encourage people to do that. I guess pursue your other passion, right? In this case, it's not really a side passion. It's actually as important for me, but it's not something that I can contribute today in worlds to solve, right? Climate change, extinction of some of these huge mammals in the sea. And it's something that I hold dearly to. And I, I do that quite often in terms of donation, for instance, helping to rally increase awareness. I think in Singapore recently, there's also a lot of talks about this. I think because they're trapped, on this small island <laughs> and they do see more of this, right? So like even, I think Madhush have a recent article about how people like just destroy beaches and collect crabs out of the sea because they have nothing to do, right? So they just dig out clams, mussel, and then just bring uh -huh. home. Compared to the past, because, you know, you will do that in other countries, <laughs> ocean and beaches, but now they're trapped here, so they're doing it onshore. Yeah, so that's, I guess, one of my more interesting stuff that I do. And because of pandemic, I didn't do it last year, so I do it every three years. 10, 13, 15, 18, I couldn't do it. I wanted to do it last year and then pandemic hits. So I do these boat trips out and volunteer by work with Research Institute. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I am also a diver, big diver, of course. They live in Thailand and I just watched Seaspiracy on Netflix, which really scares me about eating fish. And I used to be a pescatarian and now I'm like, um, should I continue being a pescatarian? I don't want to <laughs> make the fish go extinct. <laughs> that's when I guess technology comes in. <laughs> you know, that now there's a lot of like plant-based stuff, right? I'm looking at a few. Exactly, and then exactly. there are some that specializes in seafood as well. But of course, the famous one, Beyond Meats and Possible Foods, are all still on focusing on steak. But there are more that's come in that specialize in remaking different type of meat. Yeah, yeah. But it's still pretty hard to access from Southeast Asia, I think, which I hope it will change going forward. Before we wrap up the conversation, just last question for me, and maybe Michael, you might have something else. What is your advice for 
other aspiring female founders, people who might be in tech or might be interested in doing their own thing one day? Yeah, I think for me, when I first left, right, I think that's a very big mindset change. I don't know whether it's a woman thing, but most of the female founders I spoke to have the same thing. One thing was that, you know, whenever they make a decision, they tend to deliberate a lot before they make a decision. And then after they make the decision, they still deliberate whether, you know, they make a right choice or not. And yeah. it happens There's to me a lot. There's a lot of room on our brain. <laughs> a lot of things going through. <laughs> I don't know, like, oh, so no, you make a decision. Oh, have I made the right decision? Could I have done something different? And then one of my mentors told me is this sentence, right? It's not what decision you make that's important. It's what you make of decision. And that kind of like changed the whole thing. But but I still sometimes do think about it, but I, I use this to constantly remind me to control my thoughts, to not overthink it, right? That after you make the decision, there's some good reasons that make you make that decision, right? And thinking about it doesn't change anything. There's no new information that comes in that result you would like to change the decision that you've made and it's done, right? You should think about why you made the decision and that's it, right? And once you have clear as to why you make the decision unless new information has come in shouldn't be brooding over it a lot more and that has like kept me since like you know I left my job till now though sometimes I still like think about stuff and then I'll use this to remind me and then come back to like now the present moment yes (laughs) (laughs) Michael do you have anything else you want to ask no I just want to say thank you so much for coming and doing this you've taken a ton of your time this morning and I have learned a lot a lot. Thank you so much. I hope the listener will also learn a lot. <laughs> and if there's anything, anyone that feels uh, want to ping me just for you guys also, feel free to engage me on LinkedIn or whatnot. Because <laughs> I feel like, okay, so one thing I find that podcast is that because it's one way. So I'm hoping that, you know, there are ways to make it more bilateral. Because I feel like every time I, I talk to people, I also learn from them as well, right? And hopefully we can do the same. Likewise. And I think for us, we'll be engaging with the listeners from our website and our Twitter page as well and on LinkedIn. So hopefully it's not going to be one-way communication from you. But I think podcast is great in a way that it's one too many. Like you're sharing your story today and thousands of people can hear it all over the world. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 